And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, picking up in verse 30. Showing and receiving care is a universal human feeling. It is a universal human longing. Caring for others is not simply a Christian virtue. You could think of many people and look at many people throughout the world and throughout history that have shown great acts of benevolence towards others. One quote, only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. Albert Einstein. If you want, to, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. The Dalai Lama. Oh, and here's a good one. Some people care too much. I think it's called love. Winnie the Pooh. It sounds like the start of a bad joke. A Jewish man, a Buddhist, and a bear. But when we think about it, the longing for care, if care is to be expressed, shared, or received in the secular world, how much more should we as Christians, as those with a Christian biblical worldview, an understanding of humanity created in the image of God, how much more should we who have been saved by Jesus Christ show care to others as we see modeled in the Scriptures? This morning we will continue our series through Mark picking up where we left off last time. And chapter 6 is a very interesting chapter in Mark's Gospel. We have a series of realities of ministry that Mark shows us. Picking up at the beginning of chapter 6, we see the reality that we will face rejection. From there, Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, being sent on mission. That's what the apostles were to do. With John the Baptist, it will cost you everything in ministry. And today... The reality of ministry, caring for others. So follow along with me, picking up in verse 30. Hear the word of God. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. 
Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This ends the reading of the Word of God. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your Word. That by your Spirit you would apply these words to the hearts of men and women in here. That we would be refreshed, encouraged, edified, exhorted through the ministry of your preached Word. In Jesus' name, amen. What we notice here in this passage is a series of events where Jesus cares for people. Jesus shows us in great detail His heart for people. I want you to notice here, picking up in verse 30, that Jesus cares for the few. Jesus cares for the few, verses 30 through 32. What we see happening here is the apostles have returned from their mission trip. This is a Mark sandwich where John the Baptist's account has been inserted into the middle. But this is picking up right after verse 13 where they had been sent out on mission to go and perform the work that God, had, the Lord Jesus had called them and commissioned them to do. And so some time goes by. This wasn't a weekend trip, certainly a duration of time has gone by. They have returned to Jesus, and they are giving, them, giving him an update. Here's a mission update, Jesus, of all that has happened. We went out to these cities. We proclaimed repentance in your name. We casted out demons. Some people rejected us. Other people embraced us. It was awesome. It was terrifying. It was, it was thrilling, but we made it out alive. We're back here to debrief you, Jesus. We healed many sick and cast out demons. And what we see here is, you see the kindness of Jesus here. Jesus demonstrates a reality of ministry. And that is the caring for the health and well-being of others. Notice what he says after they come back and give him the debrief in verse 30. He says to them, in all of their excitement, he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, and rest a while. And we have the reason why Jesus says this to them. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Here is Jesus' care for the few. In fact, it's Jesus' care for his ministers. There are, four, there are three important practices that Jesus calls his disciples, and by implication, all who labor in the ministry, in church ministry, that we should consider here these three practices from his statement in verse 31. And the first is to stop. There are times when you are called upon to stop what you're doing. Jesus says, come away by yourselves. He's saying, leave your ministry output behind. We don't hear that too often, do we? No, he's saying, take a break. It is necessary for you and for your health and for your well-being. He says this word here, by yourselves. He says, step aside for your own good. Care for your body and your soul so that you can care for the body and soul of others. 
So the first practice we see that Jesus tells his disciples to stop. Second, he calls them to solitude, to a desolate place. Quite literally, he says, change your context. Move out of where you have been ministering, and you need solitude. You need to be free from distraction. If we were to cross the bridge here and bring this into the contemporary world today, he's saying you need to step back from the pressing needs. You need to unplug. You need to turn the cell phone off at times. You need to unplug the laptop. Let the battery drain. You can't find solitude if you're constantly plugged in. Come away to a desolate place. And the third thing he says is Sabbath. So stop solitude and Sabbath. Rest a while. There's a necessity for Jesus' men to rest. Everyone needs a break. Everyone needs a break. And what is so important, I want you to observe here about what Jesus is saying here. This is the kindness of Jesus. When does Jesus teach them this lesson when it, when it comes to the apostolic ministry? Does he wait till they're 20 years in? 40 years in? He said, oh, I should have warned you about something. No, after their first mission trip, after they return from this trip, Jesus in, implements this very important principle. There is a need for rest. There's a need to recharge. Commenting on this, J.C. Ryle says, these words are full of deep wisdom. Our Lord knows well that his servants must attend to their own souls as well as the souls of others. He knows that a constant attention to public work is apt to make us forget our own private soul business and that while we are keeping the vineyards of others, we are in danger of neglecting our own. So what's the reason? What would be the reason that Jesus tells them to stop for solitude, for Sabbath? Because the demands of ministry that they were facing were so high. People were coming and going. They had no time to break. They had no time to have a meal. They were struggling to even eat dinner. So what do they do? They take off by boat, we see in verse 32, and they went away to a desolate place seeking rest. And here's the point that I want you to see here, even of this account, is that this is a principle of wisdom, that those that serve in the Lord's work need to take time to rest and recharge. And I'm not talking about vocational pastors. I'm talking about ministers of the gospel, Christians. There, many of you work a full-time job, and then when you get off of your full-time job, you give of yourself in lay ministry in the church. You're doing double duty. Many of you need to rest. Some of us like hearing that. Some of us don't like hearing that. The reality is it's true. Now, it might vary from person to person, but this is for all those who give themselves in the work of the church. We all, after seasons of intense ministry, need to find time to recharge the battery. We need to come away to a desolate place and rest a while. You need to think about what that is for you. So how can we do this intentionally? How can we take what Jesus says and say, yes, Jesus, we're going to do what you say? I would challenge you to first look inward. Look inward. Do you need rest? Do you rest? Can you read Jesus' words here in verse 31 and say, yes, I am seeking to obey this principle. Stop. Solitude. 
Sabbath? Is this a purposeful practice in your life? I'm always going to get to it one day. I, I will rest when dot, dot, dot. This is my problem. So I'm not saying I have mastery of this. There's always something else that needs to get done, and I want to get that thing done. And once that thing gets done, I am going to rest. But then something else comes up. That's actually what happens in this passage, too. Look inward. Remember this. Everything you say yes to, you are saying no to something else. doesn't matter what it is. Yes, I'm going to go do that ministry. No, I'm going to have to say no to the time that I could spend elsewhere. Remember that. So look, in, look inward, look outward. The reality of ministry is that we care for others. Are there church members that you see that are going hard in ministries, taking very little rest? Maybe they need you to remind them of rest. You are your brother's keeper. You can care for them by coming alongside them. There are few. There are the few that carry a lot of heavy Loads, even in our church, that do the heavy lifting. There are many fresh bodies that are sitting on the bench right now that could really come in and sub in for someone for a season in order to care for them and be a faithful servant to that one who's on the weary field. So what we see first in Jesus' demonstration of ministry here is that Jesus cares for the few. He's in it for the long game. For those of you that are giving yourself in the work of the church and church work and ministering, I don't care about what you do in a week. What's your ministry going to be like over the course of 10 years, 15, 20 years? We want to do this in the, we want to be able to pace ourselves at times for the long game. Jesus shows here caring for the few. But we will notice here in this passage that that time is short-lived even for them. This is the only account that's really brought forth in all four of the Gospels. It's the only account where the miracle, all four Gospel writers, it's that important to them. And if you were to take the uh, synoptics and add in John and put together, you can have a fuller picture of the story. Time does not permit us to do that. But we do see that they go away here. They do rest for a short period of time, but it is very short. And what we notice here verses. 33 and 34. Look at it with me again in your text. They take off in the boat, and now there's a great crowd that sees the apostles getting in the boat, and they're like, hey, I recognize those guys. That's Jesus. Those were the guys that were just traveling in my city, my town. Hey, where are they going? It looks like they're getting away. We can't let them get away. So they see them get in the boat, and they're thinking, all right, well, we don't have a boat. So we're going to run after them. And so as they're going their straight journey away to Bethsaida, which is where they were going to rest, the crowd can't get in, chase them on water. No, there's only one that walks on water. So they must run around. And so they take off literally on foot running after the apostles, the disciples, and Jesus. This is a crazy sight here. And I want you to observe of this crowd as they recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns to get there ahead of them. This is a crowd that knows no boundaries. They know no boundaries. This crowd was needy, intrusive, persistent. 
In John's account, he lets us know that they're chasing after him because they're following because of the signs and the healings. They want something. The disciples are in the boat literally seeing this swarm of people. We already have the number here. This isn't a little crowd. This isn't a posse of 15. No, this is a massive crowd. It is estimated that the surrounding cities around um, the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and some of the other ones, the population was two to 3,000 in those cities. So it's like everybody in multiple cities are coming together. This is, this is an epic throng of people. And they're running around the Sea of Galilee. I can't help but think, what, were, what do you think was going through the apostles, the disciples' minds as they're seeing this happen? There goes that sabbatical. They're humans just like us, right? How would you feel if you were in that situation? You've just been grinding through ministry. You barely have time to sit down and eat. The phone's ringing off the hook. People needs, all the stuff is going and you're putting out, putting out, putting out and you finally hear these gracious words, come and rest and you're thinking, all right, I'm gonna get to rest and then this epic crowd is running after you. I couldn't help but think they might be thinking something like this. We are on our way to take a sabbatical. Jesus, make sure you tell them we're not on the clock anymore. And if we are honest, we might not say those exact words, but we could have similar feelings as well. Do you have people in your life that don't understand boundaries, but are intrusive, persistent, needy? How do you respond to them when you're tired? when you're worn out and you're needing a break? Well, let us consider Christ's response to them. Verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like, a sheep, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus had compassion on them. We can do things for people by way of service, showing external care, and still lack compassion. This is very important to understand, is that true Christian care starts from the inside out. You can fake caring. You can't fake compassion. What this word means is, is deep empathy. It is as though Jesus sees this large crowd of people and while some are tired and want something, the disciples want to say, just send them away. Jesus is saying, I can't. I won't. He has this burning in his heart for them. And like, like we said in John, they're coming for the signs and the works. Jesus cares for the many. And I want us to observe and even apply this to our own lives, that true Christ-like care for others is rooted first in the heart. It is a matter of the heart. Sympathy fuels action. It is from the heart that we then would lay forth and go with our hands. Jesus sees these people, but not as intrusive or lacking situational awareness, but as sheep without a shepherd, harassed, helpless. They didn't need to be shooed away. They didn't need to be looked at as an inconvenience. What they needed was love. William Hendrickson, commenting on this passage, says in his mind, quote, speaking of Jesus, in his mind, he probes their sorrows. He understands them. On his heart, he takes their burdens. He loves them. 
With his will, he removes their affliction. He heals them. With him, sympathy is not just a feeling. It is, as far as possible, an identification. He teaches them. He heals them. He feeds them. The point is that the need to rest does not mean we cease caring for others. Care for others in season and out of season. Care for others when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. Care for others at all times. It's not a light switch. Compassion is not turning on and turning off. It is the position of our hearts. The closer you are to Christ, the bigger your heart is for others. And the disciples right now are getting one of the best ministry training practicums they could ever receive. They are getting a firsthand look at what it means to live a life of pure selflessness in Jesus Christ. Luke would tell us of this account. It's not just that Jesus went out there to teach the crowds. It's that Luke tells us he welcomed them. Jesus is teaching, and he begins teaching, and he keeps on teaching. And the disciples are looking and saying, well, the sundial, and they're moving it, and they're thinking, this is going to be a long day here. This is getting to be a long day. And so the disciples in verses 35 and 36 come to Jesus with a perceived problem that is taking place. They come up to him, Jesus, um, great message, really good, spot on, you're a perfect teacher. But do you notice, Jesus, what time it is? It's getting late. We're in the middle of nowhere. The closest Walmart is like 20 miles away. These people need to eat. We don't have much by way of provisions. Send them away. We need to send this group away. They're not, obviously, we see Jesus. They're not going anywhere. They're not, they're not going to leave this place. They're enthralled by your teaching. So, Jesus, if you, if you really care for these people, you'd send them away. And what does Jesus say? As Jesus always says, I'm not going to send them away. Jesus has come to me. Jesus has come to me. The disciples say, send them away. This is what they always do, is it not? Think about it for a minute. In Matthew 15, there's the Canaanite woman. Her daughter is, is, is severely oppressed. She comes to Jesus, a Canaanite woman, and is begging for mercy. And the disciples say, send her away. The children come up to Jesus. And the disciples rebuke them. and say, send them away. This great crowd is needy. And the disciples say, send them away. And Jesus' response, no doubt, shocks them. Verses 36 and 37. Jesus says, let them stay. Disciples send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy something, buy themselves something to eat. Jesus answered them, answered them, you give them something to eat. They must have been thinking, what? What do you mean? We give them something to eat. We need to eat. What do you mean? You can almost hear Peter retelling this story to Mark as he's writing it down. This is no doubt coming off the lips of Peter. As he's, as he's re retelling this amazing account of what was about to take place. It says, oh, Peter's telling Mark, he looked at us and said, you feed them. And we looked around. We barely had time to eat ourselves. 
And now this burden of this massive crowd has fallen upon us. We can't feed them. Philip pulls out his calculator and starts doing this and looking at the crowd and says, it's going to cost at least 200 days labor to feed all of these people for them to get a piece of food. This is impossible. This would empty our coffers. Judas has got the purse strings tight, so he's not allowing that to happen. And so they're in this frantic mode here. We can't do this. This will end our ministry. We'll go broke. And we don't have food to eat. We would clear out the entire bakery. And so Jesus asked them, what do they have? They find a boy and get five little loaves of bread and two fish. That wouldn't even feed the Gaddis family. (laughs) Who are we kidding here? I wonder how they felt as they walk up to Jesus and they've got this little bit of bread and, and a couple fish. It must have been ridiculous. They must have felt so embarrassed. Or they were thinking, see, we we told you we got nothing. So they bring him five loaves of bread and two fish. They're thinking, Jesus, we haven't had time to eat. We're hungry. We're hangry. We're tired. That's right. And we all get that way. We need that sabbatical that you talked about, Jesus. This is a perfect opportunity for the disciples. This was a perfect opportunity. Jesus is having this dialogue with them to teach them a lesson, to teach them something very important. He gave them the opportunity to exercise true faith. Think about it. Up until this point, Mark chapter 6, what have they observed? They've seen a lot of good things, have they not? A lot of miraculous things. Had they been thinking rightly, they would have thought, you talk to wind and waves and they cease. People, you don't even touch people. People touch you and they get healed. You speak the word and it happens. You raise the dead. They're familiar with Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. They're not thinking this way. They're only looking at five loaves of bread and two fish. And they're saying, this is impossible. And with man, it is impossible. But that's how Jesus shows the care for the many. He stops. He teaches them. He loves them. And it's all set up for this climatic moment that is about to take place. Jesus is going to show care for them all. In verse 39. You notice here in verse 39, you have the, word, then he, the words, then he commanded. Questions are over. The dialogue is done. They come and they present him five loaves of bread and two fish. And it's as though Jesus says, that's perfect. That's just enough. Actually, that's more than enough for what's about to take place. Jesus now gives the commands. Verse 39. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. I love that Mark tells us the color of the grass. This is very important. You take the parallel passage in John chapter 6. It's the Passover. This is April-ish in Palestine. This is the Passover before the last one. It's interesting, on the Passover, his last Passover, he breaks bread, 
institutes the Lord's Supper, the Passover before, he feeds 5,000 people. That's in, on purpose. And so the grass is green, no doubt, in the mind of Mark, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still, still waters. He restores my soul. He is the shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the fulfillment of every prophecy. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is the anointed one. And he is about to demonstrate that for all of humanity. And for the last 2,000 years, we have had the delight of entering into this scene to see. So everyone is sitting at this point. They've been broken up into groups of 50 and hundreds. If they're counting only the men, that could be rows of 100 rows of 50 or 50 rows of 100. We don't necessarily know. But what you need to see in your mind is this is, uh, this is massive. This is like an amphitheater that is surrounding Jesus. I was thinking about this as, as Matthew would tell us that in this account, they they did not count women and children. And so if you were to try to come up with a reasonable number for the size of this crowd, you are not stretching to say ten to 15,000, 12,000 people are gathered here. This is a big deal. I've gone to a few basketball games at the Dunkin' Donuts Center throughout the years or hockey games, and maybe some of you have been up there as well. The seating capacity of the Dunkin' Donuts Center is about 12,000 people. Imagine this. Imagine in a contemporary setting, you have Jesus at the center court there. The disciples are down there, and every seat in the Dunkin' Donuts Center is filled. They're broken off into rows and sections, and there's not an empty seat in the house. We know that, like, like we said, there was 5,000 men there. And here is Jesus standing center court with five loaves of bread and two fish and a handful of baskets and 12 workers. And what happens? What do we see? He lifts his eyes up to heaven and he blesses the food. Thank you, Father, for this food. May you bless it to our bodies and may we glorify you this day for our supply. And he begins to break bread. And he breaks bread. And he breaks bread. We read this in two verses and we think, oh, that happened like that. This is a long, drawn-out miracle. He breaks the bread, and he breaks the bread, and he breaks the bread. He didn't wave a magic wand over this bread, and poof, here came bread. Why? Because all the pieces were broken pieces that we see here. One basket is full as he's broken the bread, and he hands it to Simon and says, you're going up to section 202 over there. Go. And then he begins breaking the bread again. And Judas, you're going over there. Go. And he breaks the bread again, and he starts sending out the apostles. And everybody is looking at this thing, saying, this is blowing my mind. My eyes cannot register what is actually happening before me. This is, this is, not, this is not reality, is it? What is happening in this moment? It is this. Jesus is multiplying matter. There is no other way to explain this. Protestant liberalism says everybody just shared their sandwich. And that's how everybody got it together. If you're a naturalist, you have to come up with some sort of crazy explanation that doesn't, sit, doesn't fit with the text. What you must understand here is Jesus multiplies matter. Now, if you are familiar with the laws of physics, you have a problem right now. 
you have a serious problem right now. Because the first law of thermodynamics says that matter is neither matter nor energy can be created or destroyed. And while this is an absolutely true law, we must understand that God made the law. And that the laws that govern our existence and reality are God's laws. So how do we explain what's happening then in light of the first law of thermodynamics? A miracle. It's a miracle. I would highly recommend you to grab C.S. Lewis's book on miracles, a fantastic read. And he defines a miracle as an act or occurrence that not breaks natural law, that goes beyond natural law. By definition, this is what it means when you say supernatural. That is what is occurring in this moment. So what we see is Jesus' power in this miracle far exceeding the constraints of fixed laws in physics. There is a theological point of utmost significance. What Mark does is bring you face to face with Jesus the Christ almost in every account. And once again, we are face to face with Jesus the Christ in this theological point here. Understand this, before there was time, space, and matter, there was Jesus. Genesis 1, God creates time. That's the beginning, space. That's the heavens, matter. That's the earth. And he does so how? By his word. God spoke worlds into existence. God spoke the universe into existence. Now you got to go over to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Jesus Christ, the Word of God the Father. So what we see happening here, even in this miracle, is simply what Jesus has always done. He is the Creator. Ex nihilio, meaning out of nothing. The naturalist says matter is eternal. And we say, no, it's not. God is eternal. And He is the Creator And Jesus, the divine logos of God, the word of God made flesh. So actually what you see in this miracle here is as though it is the the Mount Mount Transfiguration of miracles. Jesus is pulling the veil back and showing the full power of God that he possesses in this moment. And so he breaks bread and breaks bread hours of doing this. And he breaks the fish, and everyone eats. What's the outcome? Verse 42, Mark wants to let you know nobody needed anything more. No, they they didn't just have a little bit to eat. They all ate and were satisfied. Jesus' care is shown through the miracle, and he satisfies the people. The disciples got their meal. The crowd got fed. And Jesus displayed his glory for all to see. In fact, there's leftovers. We love leftovers sometimes. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. There are reoccurring numbers throughout the Bible. Twelve occurs 187 times, I believe, throughout the Bible. It's a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. 
It's not happenstance that we have 12 leftover baskets. It's to show us the completeness of this miracle. Jesus cares for them all. So, as we think about this, what about us? What about us? What can we learn and apply to our lives from this account? I would remind you that Jesus cares for the few, Jesus cares for the many, and Jesus cares for them all. So, a few points of application as we would think through this. First, care for those who labor in the Lord's work. I don't mean just staff pastors. Look out for your fellow brothers and sisters who are laboring, who might not know how to stop. You might be able to be a voice of encouragement to strengthen them. We do not want to find our identity in our ministry. So encourage, come alongside, shoulder the burdens. Many hands make light work. It was said of John MacArthur's church when Grace uh, was exploding in the 70s. There was an article written It says, that's the church of a hundred pastors. They didn't have a hundred pastors, but they had ministers. They had Christians serving one another. Second, care for the difficult. Care for the difficult. You will have people who will always call you at the wrong time, who will always show up unexpected and sometimes uninvited. Pray for compassion. Pray that the Lord would increase the compassion of your heart for those people. Pray for those people by name. We want to care from the inside out. Third, believe in miracles. Believe in miracles. Don't let post-enlightenment naturalism influence you, causing you to just be a rationalist. We are supernaturalists by nature. You call yourself a Christian, you are claiming a miracle has occurred in your life, that God has taken a heart of stone, replaced it with a heart of flesh, that you've been born again by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing natural about that. Believe in miracles. Understand, Jesus cares for the few, Jesus cares for the many, Jesus cares for them all. So therefore, and finally, understand, Jesus cares for you. Jesus cares for you. You might be struggling here. You might be going through a season of life where you ask the serious question, does God even care? Christian, let me tell you, absolutely He does. God cares and loves you beyond your wildest comprehension. Your brain cannot fathom the depth of God's love for you. Paul calls it the love of Christ that exceeds knowledge. Yes, you are cared for, and loved. We must understand this, that the love of God is displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are outside and aren't believers. For some reason, God has drawn you here. Or maybe you've sat in church for a long time, but you have not closed with Christ. I want to let you know that God demonstrates His great love in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to redeem a people. To give of His life as a ransom for many. That all who would come to Him 
as we sung in the song, as we see that Jesus asks and invites the crowd to come, that all who would come to the God-man in faith and repentance would find acceptance, would find hope, would find a God that cares for them beyond anything this world could ever offer. No one will love you more than Jesus. Jesus cares for you. If you have not come to Christ I would urge you, I would beg you, I would plead to you. You are running away from the most loving and kind and gracious person in the existence of the universe. Run to Him. Understand this, Christian, the same God through the Son that spoke worlds into existence is concerned about your basic needs. You don't need to go to God with all your big problems. He'll invite the little ones too. You have never bothered God by praying too much. Finally, let me just encourage you with these words. Find your satisfaction in Him. Find your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus satisfies the crowd, He is to be our satisfaction. Your greatest joy comes when you find your rest your identity, and your purpose in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. As the song goes, that we might glory in our Redeemer. My life He bought, my love He owns. I have no longing for another. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. Father, we thank You for Your care for us. We thank You that You have demonstrated Your care for those that labor in your work. You've shown care for the difficult. That you have left us an example to follow. And that Jesus Christ, very God of very God, we recognize possesses all authority and power. He is the God-man. And we submit ourselves to Him. We pray this in His name. Amen.